0: content warning the following episode includes discussion of crime police brutality and bigotry including physical violence sexual assault murder racism islamophobia homophobia and transphobia listener discretion is advised when i was a kid I admired those who hit the streets, protested, and participated in other actions of civil disobedience for civil rights. It's one of the reasons why, to this day, I take political participation seriously. And this was long before I knew that my family members participated in meaningful ways. As I got older, learning about other American movements such as the Women's Suffrage Movement, the Women's Rights Movement, the Chicano Movement, the gay rights movement, and other movements dedicated to making the United States more fully inclusive of everyone, I always felt those movements inspiring. And yet, when I was younger, particularly when I was a teenager in the 1990s, I didn't really see a lot of large-scale protesting, particularly when it came to the rights of black Americans. A lot of people seemed to take for granted that we had already made it, even though it was clear that that wasn't completely true. Things were better than they were, say, when my parents or grandparents were kids, but not where they should have been. One of the times this was made clear to me was when my inner-city Catholic high school that seemed to always be on the verge of closing participated in student exchanges with suburban schools. My parents, particularly my dad, always said that public schools were falling apart, didn't educate students sufficiently, and were dangerous, and that was why we were sent to Catholic schools. But it was eye-opening walking into East Detroit High School. East Detroit High School was located in East Point, a working-class suburb that borders the city of Detroit. In 1992, The entire country was reeling with racial tensions over the acquittal of officers responsible for the 1991 savage police beating of rodney king which is widely understood to be the first time an incident of police brutality was recorded on video by a bystander and the resulting los angeles riots in metro detroit racialized anger was overflowing over a similar incident the 1992 police beating which resulted in the death of 35-year-old Malice Green. It was similar to the Rodney King beating, except there was no bystander video, Malice Green died of his injuries, and two of the officers in Green's death were convicted. In that same year, the suburban white city of East Detroit was so against being associated with mostly black Detroit that they didn't want to be called East Detroit anymore and decided to name themselves East Point after the wealthy white suburbs of Gross Pointe. But the school remained East Detroit High School. And when I visited this school, I noticed that it seemed pretty nice. I mean, not like University Liggett, the high-priced private school in wealthy Gross Pointe Woods, or even like Gross Pointe's public high schools, Gross Pointe South or Gross Pointe North, but East Detroit was still nicer than my high school. A school my parents paid money for me to attend i thought it would be like what i'd heard about detroit public schools metal detectors that were in place long before columbine old books huge class sizes buildings in need of major repairs and short on money but nope east detroit was brighter with more modern classrooms and a larger selection of classes and activities While the class sizes were larger than those at my small, struggling high school, they weren't overflowing with students either. Even working-class white kids seemed to have more than what we did when it came to educational resources. And though I was a teenager, I wasn't stupid. I was aware enough, even at that point in my life, to see that something wasn't right. And I wondered why we weren't out here fighting for better in our own community, This was before I knew about how public schools in Michigan and in most other states are funded, which is through property taxes. And because much of the United States is still racially segregated in practice, and wealth is very much tied to race, it impacts education in a major way. And while public funding doesn't explain gaps in private schools, housing segregation and white flight definitely does. The white girls who attended my high school in the 1960s and 1970s were now white women. They no longer lived in Detroit and were not sending their daughters to be educated alongside black girls who now lived in the neighborhoods they and their families left behind. We had a particular substitute teacher who would always come in when one of our regular teachers was out. She said she was an alumna of our school who graduated long ago and she would talk up how great our school was and how we were getting a wonderful education. One time in class, a student asked her why, if our school was so awesome, why she didn't send her daughters, who were around our age, to our school. She stumbled over her words and struggled to give us a clear answer, but we all knew why. Now, of course, time marches on. I graduated from high school in 1999. White flight, declining enrollment, and financial divestment over the decades took a major toll on the viability of my high school, and it did ultimately shut down in 2005. As for East Detroit High School, it was renamed East Point High School in 2017, 25 years after the city changed its name. But while the last vestiges of the community name East Detroit are now relegated to the dustbin of local history. East Point today is a lot more racially diverse than it was when I was growing up. And just last year, they elected their first black mayor, Monique Owens. But much like that impulse I felt when I was a kid, learning about social movements, seeing the disparities in educational resources and opportunities firsthand. There have been times over the years where I have wondered, as our country has continued to roll back civil rights for many of its people, is leaning further into authoritarianism, and it has become more evident that the capitalist economic system and many US institutions in place are not designed to work for the majority of us, why more of us aren't out here on the streets. I would see the Arab Spring in protests in Europe where the streets were filled with protesters And I asked myself why I didn't see that, even when participating in demonstrations over the years. And it wasn't like we didn't have reasons along the way. The Iraq War, the Patriot Act, Guantanamo Bay, drone strikes, family separations, caging of children, ripping away of trans rights, and so on. Even police brutality has a history that stretches back much, much longer than George Floyd. It took the backdrop of record unemployment and an out-of-control pandemic to be the kindling that pushed our country over the edge and out onto the streets, finally. And then it dawned on me that for Americans to hit the streets, like the social movements of past generations, and like the Arab Spring and similar movements globally, We have to be incredibly uncomfortable in living with a lot more uncertainty than what we're used to in order to put our well-being in danger for large-scale protests, which at least for me, puts much of our history into a much different perspective. It feels like in a lot of ways, we're living in the worst timeline. A major pandemic, the worst unemployment rate since the Great Depression, extreme social and political uncertainty and a government that is actively weaponizing that pandemic, fighting against the science and any shred of empathy and compassion in order for dear leader to secure re-election. Kid didn't think this part through. Yet, the Black Lives Matter protests and the conversation on race and policing that has opened up because of them give me a great deal of hope. Let's not waste this opportunity. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to the Pot Story Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. This is the final part of a two-part series on policing in America. In part one, I discussed the early development of modern police departments in the United States, including slave patrols in the antebellum South and police forces in the industrializing North, designed to protect the interests of wealthy industrialists. By policing the social behavior of wage workers. I also discussed responses to the resistance a number of Americans have to criticism of police behavior, and demonstrated with available research studies that policing practices, rather than some innate disposition for certain races to commit crime, lead to racial differences in interactions with police. If you haven't listened to that episode, you'll want to check that out first. This week, I want to focus on government accountability. Americans tend to be distrustful of government, except when government is used to attack boogeymen on our behalf, foreign or domestic. Police militarization and the legal barriers that keep police departments from facing accountability. That's what I want to talk about. And it's also important to discuss solutions. So later in the episode, I'll get into that. Last time, I briefly brought up the mantra of Blue Lives Matter, the status quo answer to Black Lives Matter. And in some ways, this has gotten more extreme over the past 20 years. Besides all the laws passed to criminalize more people and shield police from being held accountable for their actions, two other developments have led to the social unrest of the past two months and the events that led to our national conversation on race and policing. One development is that according to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, white supremacist groups have been making a concerted effort to infiltrate police departments in recent years. This isn't alarmist. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is 100% real. The FBI investigated this for several years, constructing a report on the trend in 2006. The report is available online in heavily redacted form And due to the increased visibility of police brutality over the last few years, a number of lawmakers and interest groups are pushing the Trump regime to publish the report unredacted. What the public version of the report does tell us is that the FBI's purpose in investigating this is less about the danger of white supremacists to people of color, as well as Jews, Muslims, and members of the LGBTQ community, and more about the danger white supremacist infiltrators pose to existing law enforcement investigations into white supremacist groups and the danger posed to other officers and elected officials, of course. But nevertheless, the report mentions that this phenomenon first came on their radar in 2004. This infiltration is through what these white supremacist groups, such as the skinheads, call ghost skins. These are white supremacists who essentially go undercover or assimilate enough as a normal enough person to be hired by law enforcement agencies. But despite the FBI's focus on how white supremacists in police forces affect their intelligence work and the lives of politicians, this infiltration has real effects on how police relate to the public. The thing to understand is that while the FBI wrote the report 14 years ago, there is no evidence that this trend has ever stopped. And one thing to consider with this is that those white supremacists who joined police forces across the country 14 or so years ago, many of these people are now veterans in their police departments, those who are in positions to lead and to train and teach rookie officers on how to interact with the public they protect and serve. For example, a group of attorneys in Philadelphia had discovered violent, racist, and bigoted Facebook posts from Philadelphia police officers in 2016. The uncovering of this world of Philadelphia cops advocating for violence and death to black men arrested for crimes hit and runs against political protesters, anti-Muslim slurs, and joking about beating and raping women led to the creation of the Plainview Project. The project is geared towards uncovering the thousands of Facebook posts posted by verified police officers in eight police jurisdictions across the United States, including Philadelphia, Dallas, St. Louis, Phoenix, York, Pennsylvania, Twin Falls, Idaho, Denison, Texas, and Lake County, Florida. And if you check out their website, it's shocking to see what is shared in what are typically private Facebook groups geared towards cops. For example, an active-duty Philadelphia police officer posted this, quote, how long until a law-abiding, gun-permit-carrying Trump supporter decides his life is in danger and blows away one of these domestic terrorist Democrats? End quote with four thinking emojis. Another officer responds to this post stating in all caps, quote, hoping real soon, end quote, with three gun emojis. There are also other posts where police officers repost inflammatory right-wing memes. For example, one particular active duty Phoenix officer posted several, such as one that shows the Confederate flag Juxtaposed with a picture of two black men with sagging pants. And the text reads, quote, this does not offend me. This bullshit does. End quote. Another from this same cop shows a picture of First Lady Michelle Obama with the caption quoting a speech that she made. Quote, every single day I wake up in a house that was built by slaves. End quote. And below it, Another picture with John Wayne with the caption, quote, then get out and take your gay Muslim husband with you, end quote. And there are other posts made by active duty and retired police officers retweeting articles from right-wing and straight-up propaganda outlets with misleading storylines. And in the posts and comments referring to Black people and Muslims as savages, making anti-trans jokes, and much more. Another study conducted by the Center for Investigative Reporting, a nonprofit investigative journalism group, found evidence of hundreds of active duty and retired police officers from across the United States that have joined Confederate, anti-Islamic, misogynistic, or anti-government militia Facebook groups. About their findings, the journalists state, quote, these cops have worked at every level of American law enforcement, from tiny rural sheriff's departments to the largest agencies in the country, such as the Los Angeles and New York police departments. They work in jails and schools and airports, on boats and trains, and in patrol cars. And as reveal from the Center for Investigating Reporting discovered, they also read and contribute to groups such as White Lives Matter and death to islam undercover end quote the center states later on in the piece regarding the facebook groups quote the groups cover a range of extremist ideologies some present themselves publicly as being dedicated to benign historical discussion of the confederacy bar replete with racism inside some trade in anti-semitic and anti-immigrant memes some are openly Islamophobic." and almost 150 of these officers we found are involved with violent anti-government groups such as the Oath Keepers and Three Percenters, end quote. According to the center, the findings touched over 50 police departments across the country. Some, but definitely not all, took some type of action when they were made aware of these posts. And yes, these are the kinds of people actively patrolling the streets across the country being told they are above the law with a badge, gun, and more. Speaking of more, the other development is the militarization of police departments. Police militarization has been going on in some way, shape, or form for several decades. This includes development of Special Weapons and Tactics Teams, or SWAT teams, within police departments. SWAT teams were first envisioned in the mid-1960s, by Daryl Gates, best known as the Chief of Police for the Los Angeles Police Department during the Rodney King beating in the LA riots, along with John Nelson, another LAPD officer who had a background in the Marines. SWAT teams were initially created to stall or circumvent the need for outgunned police departments to call in National Guard troops for civil unrest incidents. Initially, SWAT teams were used to suppress urban riots and respond to bank robberies, but later became a heavily used tool to serve drug warrants from around the 1980s during the crack epidemic to the present day. But police militarization has been taken a step further since the 1990s. In 1996, the National Defense Authorization Act, in particular Section 1033 of the Act, has provided a program for the U.S. Department of Defense, a cabinet-level agency, to funnel weaponry to civilian law enforcement agencies. And according to Oxfam, since that time, $7 billion worth of weapons and equipment have been sent to over 8,000 law enforcement agencies through the act. Due to the September 11th attacks, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Another cabinet-level department of the federal government, created by the George W. Bush administration after 9-11, has a number of purposes, including curbing terrorism, increasing border security, increasing the government's cybersecurity, among others. As part of this mission, the DHS works with state and local governments on emergency preparedness and obtaining necessary emergency equipment. This cooperation has included state and local law enforcement agencies, obtaining military-like training, and military-level equipment that you would typically see on an overseas battlefield. Computer equipment, surveillance drones, tanks, and other armored vehicles, drugs. Drugs? The DHS has released a list of 21 categories of acceptable equipment that state and local agencies, including police departments and other first responders, are able to obtain under their federal grant programs. There is a wide range of equipment available to law enforcement, including a number of pharmaceuticals. Some of these include over-the-counter drugs like acetaminophen, Tylenol, and ibuprofen, but others are a bit more hardcore. anticonvulsives such as Ativan and anti-anxiety medications like Xanax, even opioids like fentanyl. All of these can legally be obtained through Homeland Security grants, and law enforcement, including those ghost skins in police departments across the country, have legal access to them. When we watch Law & Order or Forensic Files, or listen to our favorite true crime podcasts, we often see the police as the protagonists, the good guys, fighting to bring a perpetrator to justice for the victims of major crimes. And if the victim is deceased, justice for their families. We hear that detective reliving that one case that has haunted her for decades, or telling the story of that one crazy case she got tied up in on her last day before retiring from the police force. We listened to that patrol officer discussing that one time when they were just having a normal day and then found themselves face-to-face with a ruthless killer, or when they were called to a crime scene that they'll never forget. And when it comes to real-life cases, I would never want to discount the feelings and experiences of police officers who find themselves in these positions. But those are also examples of police being portrayed as the good guys by default. It's referred to as copaganda, the portrayal of police as sympathetic characters, protagonists, the good guys. And it's not that police officers can't be these things, but a constant drip, drip, drip of this type of messaging over time paints a picture of police as being beyond reproach. As unqualifyingly good and therefore are deserving of special protection so they can do their jobs. And if you find yourself in their crosshairs, you must have done something wrong. You must be a criminal. And that's before you even have an opportunity to defend yourself in a court of law. And whatever happens to you is your own fault. Propaganda leaves us to lend instant credibility to law enforcement while distrusting those who have been victimized by them. The pervasiveness of propaganda has allowed laws and policies to be enacted that have given police far-reaching powers without significant opposition. Qualified immunity protects police officers from being held personally liable in most lawsuits alleging violations of a plaintiff's rights unless the officer violated a clearly established statutory or constitutional right. And in practice, it's rare that courts find this exception to be the case. Laws on the books in many jurisdictions allow police to lawfully use deadly force on members of the community if officers state they were in fear for their lives. This defense has allowed for a lot of officer acquittals for killing unarmed and legally armed Americans. No-knock warrants, the ability of police SWAT teams to burst into private homes unannounced in order to seize evidence of crimes and take suspects into custody. When SWAT teams show up at these homes, they invade, they break in, they destroy their homes, shoot their pets, even potentially shoot the people who live there. The police are invading the property of someone who may not have been convicted of a crime at all. A no-knock warrant led to the murder of Brianna Taylor, a first responder who was shot and killed in her own home while in bed due to the execution of a no-knock warrant by Louisville Police SWAT. The police took her boyfriend, who was shooting at the police in self-defense, believing they were burglars, into custody for months before releasing him. The effed up part about this is, the police got the wrong home. The man they were looking for was already in police custody. While one of the officers involved has been fired, none of Brianna's killers have been arrested and charged for her murder. All of these killers are walking free as a bird and breathing our same air. We're also seeing the consequences of police militarization when it comes to police reactions to the Black Lives Matter protests. Police are suiting up in riot gear, using beanbags, tear gas, and other chemical irritants on protesters in the middle of a pandemic of a disease that attacks the lungs. They're harming and maiming protesters and journalists, some of whom had landed in the hospital for serious injuries and have even lost eyes in these aggressive police actions. The chemical weapons, in particular, and when we talk about tear gas, pepper spray, and other chemicals, let's call them what they are. These chemical weapons are illegal in war according to the Geneva Protocol. So the military are not allowed to use these weapons on the killing fields of Afghanistan, but riot police are allowed to use these weapons on American citizens exercising their First Amendment rights. And on top of the violent actions of local and state police forces, federal police and contractor forces, mercenaries, are being deployed and are involved in more chilling actions. First seen in Washington, D.C. and now being used in places like Portland, Oregon, federal law enforcement wearing unmarked uniforms are enacting violence against protesters, severely injuring them. And particularly in Portland, there are roving police forces who are reportedly snatching protesters off the street and driving off with them in unmarked vehicles. For those who claim to be so worried about government taking away our rights, our freedoms, this is where we are. And all we hear from those folks are crickets. Hi, everyone. This is Jay just popping in to let you know that if you're interested in discussing this and other related topics more in depth with other listeners, check out the Potstar Podcast discussion group. On Facebook. It's an awesome group where we share and discuss the episodes, news stories, and other related issues, and it's a really good time. Just search for Poster Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook and click to join. Recently, Black Lives Matter as a movement commemorated seven years in existence. While the slogan Black Lives Matter has recently gone mainstream and even corporate in some respects. In the wake of the George Floyd killing by police in Minneapolis and the resulting protests and uprisings both nationwide and in several other places around the world, some Americans may forget or may not know that the Black Lives Matter movement is by no means brand new. It originally formed out of the murder of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin in the acquittal of his killer, George Zimmerman. It was started by three black women, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi. And according to the movement's website, blacklivesmatter.com, its purpose is to, quote, organize and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes, end quote. The site goes on to state, quote, Black Lives Matter is an ideological and political intervention in a world where black lives are systematically and intentionally targeted for demise. It is an affirmation of black folks' humanity, our contributions to this society, and our resilience in the face of deadly oppression." End quote. And this is important. Some people argue that Black Lives Matter must not really think black lives matter if they limit their scope to protesting black people being murdered by police and neighborhood crusaders the argument typically goes that since they are not focused on street crime or the way they put it black on black crime black lives matter doesn't truly care about black lives it's a bit of a strange argument and it's a bit disingenuous Do people say that Mothers Against Drunk Driving are exclusionary because the name only states mothers? What about dads who oppose drunk driving or those who aren't parents but still lost loved ones to accidents involving alcohol? What about kids dying by other means besides drunk driving accidents? The idea that Black Lives Matter can't limit their scope as an activist group is a bit ridiculous. Black Lives Matter as a slogan and as the name of a movement has meaning, and context here is key. I discussed it a bit in the bonus episode, Affluenza, released publicly last month, that when black people are murdered by the police or by civilian vigilantes like Zimmerman and the McMichaels in Georgia who allegedly killed jogger Ahmaud Arbery, the tendency is to demonize the victim, find anything in their past. Whether it's wearing a hoodie and acting like a teenager, like Trayvon Martin, or prior convictions such as George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, as a way to essentially say that they deserve to die, or they put themselves in the position to be murdered. Anything to justify the actions of the police or the civilians responsible. Even when their past or even their present behavior had nothing, zero, zilch to do with their deaths, is as if black people have to be perfect to be real victims. And even then, it's not enough. There are even people out here attempting to demonize Brianna Taylor. And she was a first responder who was literally murdered in her bed by a SWAT team who got the wrong house. This not-so-innocent victim narrative applied almost exclusively to black people weaponizes the way the criminal justice system criminalizes black people especially black men from the time they are children via the school to prison pipeline despite that controlling for poverty there is no significant difference between black and white in their propensity to commit crime it makes it seem as if their lives weren't as valuable as that of other murder victims so those who are pushing for justice are then reduced to race baiters and agitators. At its core, this type of narrative setting is victim blaming and it has real consequences. It is rare to see white and other non-black neighborhood crusaders who have targeted black people get convicted and rare still for police of any shade to be put away for killing unarmed or legally armed black people. The Black Lives Matter movement is essentially saying that despite the racist narrative setting that seeks to devalue the lives of black victims of police and vigilante violence, that these lives have value. And when these lives are valued, when these lives matter, all lives will matter. Also, black on black crime, including black on black murder, is essentially racializing a phenomenon common among all races violent crime particularly murder is typically intraracial most black people are killed by other black people and most white people are killed by other white people most latino people are killed by other latino people and so on again it's not a matter of black people not taking responsibility for their own behavior as those who push the black on black crime narrative tend to argue but that most crimes like murder are crimes of proximity and opportunity. Most of the time, people harm and kill people they're close to, family members, friends, and neighbors. And let's be real, this is America. And even in 2020, most of our families and close social circles reflect ourselves in a lot of ways, including color and class. Do we ask white people to take responsibility for themselves when they focus on specific types of advocacy and activism. Also, when we talk about street crimes, especially robberies, burglaries, and drug-related crimes, these are often more a function of poverty, yet poverty in the U.S. has a racial component. I've discussed in depth the historical and political factors leading to the development and persistence of urban slums in the Detroit America series, the Urban Renewal series, and the Drug War series. So you'll want to listen to those if you'd like to hear more in-depth research and a more detailed take on this. But I bring this up very briefly because usually when detractors of Black Lives Matter point to Black-on-Black crime, they're focusing on street crime, which is a function of poverty, but also, as I discussed last episode and in other episodes as well, a function of over-policing in urban Black neighborhoods, especially when it comes to drug crimes. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think that Black people are more likely to be involved with drugs and commit crimes, and you have the power to arrest whoever you want with little real oversight, it's easy to create your own reality. But here's the other thing. Despite the issues that urban ghettos face, you can take pretty much any major city in the country. And there will be one or more activist groups out here in the streets dedicated to ending violence in those communities. Take Donald Trump's favorite metaphorical stand-in for black people and his favorite whipping boy, Chicago. Chicago has several local activist groups dedicated to the opposition of gun violence and street crime. Some examples include My Block, My Hood, My City, Mamas of the Movement, Mothers Against Senseless Killings, Get In Chicago, and Strides for Peace, among many others. Even in a mid sized city like Cincinnati, organizations like Cincinnati Works and the Nonviolence Alliance of Greater Cincinnati, and neighborhood groups such as Westwood Uniting to Stop the Violence, and Kings in the neighborhood of Avondale. Work to stop street violence and murders in Cincinnati's poor urban neighborhoods. Take any major city, especially one with a segregated urban ghetto, which the vast majority of American big cities have, and you will find groups that exist doing this work and making progress within their communities. While local Black Lives Matter chapters may work together with other activist groups in their communities on these types of goals, Black Lives Matter as a whole doesn't need to take over this niche because there are other groups doing this work. By making the argument that Black Lives Matter is somehow ignoring the killing of Black people by gun and street violence, and by extension arguing that Black people generally don't care about street violence, it erases the work that is being done by local community members and organizations to improve the safety of the places they live and the peace of mind of their neighbors. The irony is that while the critics of Black Lives Matter will typically say that increasing police presence will fix the problem, the evidence isn't there that filling the streets with cops makes anyone safer, including people living in poor urban communities. The other issue is that more cops doesn't mean that those cops are actively serving and protecting those within those communities. While police are said to serve and protect, they have in reality followed a model of serving and protecting middle and upper class white interests while policing the poor and people of color, especially black and brown Americans. If these neighborhoods are being policed rather than being served and protected, then police are not reliable allies In making these neighborhoods safer, and the people who live there know it. Here's the bottom line crime has decreased since the 1990s, and also there is a distinction between actual crime, murders, rapes, robberies, assault, crimes against people that have real victims, and crime that is designated as such for the sake of social control. Laws against drug use and drug trafficking, sex work, public intoxication, and so forth. This is not to say that drugs and alcohol aren't harmful to people or that sex work can't be exploitative within a number of contexts, but these issues may be better addressed through other public resources, such as social workers, neighborhood task forces, or community organizations, rather than through criminalizing the people involved. Do militarized police officers need to always be the answer to Every social issue facing American communities? Now, that said, are there times where we might actually need some kind of law enforcement? Of course, violent crime is a thing. Crimes that damage people's lives, including white collar crimes where people are essentially being robbed through fraud or deception, those crimes are serious as well. And for these types of crimes with actual victims, we need effective law enforcement. But if we want to have some type of publicly funded law enforcement or community protection that actually does what is advertised, serving the community as a whole and protecting all communities from real life danger, how do we get there? I'm going to group these possible solutions into two categories police oversight and police restructuring. When we talk about police oversight, we're talking about solutions that focus on retaining the existing structure and funding of police departments, but scaling back some of their powers and incorporating some mechanism of police accountability. This could be through removing or revising the Qualified Immunity Rule, or statutes allowing police to be exonerated using the Fear for My Life defense. Another example of this approach, this reform approach, are statutes including the one proposed by the House of Representatives that would ban the use of chokeholds by police officers. The Senate version of this bill would target chokeholds through withholding funding without outright banning the deadly practice. Calls to demilitarize the police also fall into this category, as the idea of this is to repeal statutes such as Section 1033 and programs through the DOD and DHS that funnel weaponry and other military and specialist-grade materials to police departments. Presidential candidate and former Vice President Joe Biden falls into this camp. He has specifically stated in an op-ed regarding policing that he believes in funding the efforts of police towards implementing what he calls meaningful reforms, as well as community policing, police forging relationships with people in the communities they serve. Another approach to police reform or police accountability is the use of consent decrees and collaborative agreements. Consent decrees are agreements forged between the federal government and police departments to settle a lawsuit without an admission of guilt. In the context of U.S. police departments, these have been employed since the 1990s and have typically been entered into due to allegations of systematic police brutality, excessive use of force, racial discrimination, and violations of citizens' civil rights. In these consent decrees, police departments agree to reform their practices using guidelines specific to their cases, with federal oversight to ensure goals are being met. The evidence for their effectiveness appears to be mixed. In a 2017 journal article in Police Quarterly by criminal justice researchers Jeffrey P. Albert. Kyle McLean and Scott Wolfe. Consent decrees are effective in driving police reforms in the short term, but have not been sustainable long term. But the 2019 article published in the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Criminology and Criminal Justice by criminology scholars John Wall and Zachary A. Powell, these consent decrees improve citizen perception of the police department, fewer civil rights lawsuits are launched, And there are improvements in how police misconduct is recorded and disciplined. At the same time, these decrees are met with apprehension from police officers due to the goals of reform and the daily impact on their lives. And the Trump regime is opposed to the use of consent decrees and have scaled back the use of them. Collaborative agreements are similar to consent decrees, where these contracts are forged in order to settle a dispute but collaborative agreements may have other parties involved besides the police departments and the federal government. And the idea is to include the input of additional interests, particularly community interests, in police reform. Collaborative agreements are used less frequently than consent decrees in the United States, but are used more extensively abroad, particularly in Europe. That said, a key example that is viewed as a national model here in the U.S is the Collaborative Agreement for the City of Cincinnati. In 2001, after the police killing of 19-year-old Timothy Thomas, the resulting riots, the acquittal of Stephen Roach, the cop who killed him, a boycott of Cincinnati that led to a loss of an estimated $10 million in lost business. In a lawsuit brought against the city by the American Civil Liberties Union of Ohio and the Cincinnati Black United Front, accusing the Cincinnati Police Department of a 30-year long pattern of racial profiling and harassment of Black Cincinnatians for minor crimes, two agreements were signed. One was a consent decree between Cincinnati Police and the US Department of Justice. The other was a collaborative agreement involving the city of Cincinnati The Fraternal Order of Police, which is the city's police union, the ACLU's Ohio chapter, and the Cincinnati Black United Front, mediated by a federal district court. The agreement includes an independent citizen board for citizen complaints, incorporation of problem-solving and de-escalation approaches, and data collection on police action. It has also included mental health intervention for crime suspects, and a move away from concentrating on misdemeanor, petty crimes like loitering and jaywalking. In other words, moving away from broken windows type policies, popularized in the 1990s by then New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, and focusing more on violent crime, particularly from repeat offenders. Overall, the idea behind Cincinnati's collaborative agreement was to incorporate community voices in policing, encourage more cooperation between police and the community, and increase police transparency while also fighting crime. In practice, this has definitely not been a perfect agreement. Racial disparities in police stops and racial profiling persist in Cincinnati. Between 2012 and 2017, black Cincinnatians were stopped at a 30% higher rate than whites and made up 52% of all vehicle and pedestrian stops, even though they only made up 43% of Cincinnati's population. In Cincinnati, police made 79% more traffic stops per resident in mostly black neighborhoods than predominantly white ones. And black people made up 76% of arrests, as opposed to white people only making up 22% of arrests. And again, Like I discussed in part one, race is not a significant predictor of crime. So it is highly unlikely that this is due to the black population being inherently more criminal. And there have been more questions in the last few years as to how committed the city of Cincinnati and the FOP continue to be in terms of upholding the agreement as court oversight for the agreement ended in 2008. But Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley claims the city and police are still committed to the agreement. And the collaborative agreement has led to a 69% reduction in police use of force incidents, 42% reduction in citizen complaints, and a 56% reduction in citizen injuries during encounters with police. Cranley also notes that the agreement has led to overall increased trust between the community and Cincinnati police, an overall reduction in arrests, and at the same time, a significant reduction in violent crime in the city. Violent crime dropped by nearly half, and misdemeanor arrests dropped by almost 60%. The other category of solutions to policing that I want to discuss is police restructuring. And the thought process behind this is that it's not enough to simply retrain officers or provide for Community or some other type of independent oversight. As I discussed in part one, the entire system is working as intended, and in their view, there is no fixing it. Most advocates of police restructuring acknowledge the repressive, racist, and classist origins of modern policing, and that the current function of policing in the United States is to protect powerful, privileged interests from the perceived threat of the poor and people of color, especially black and brown Americans. And with that considered, proponents of police restructuring argue there really isn't a way to fix police that will help the disadvantaged in society. The idea here is to decrease or eliminate reliance on police and restructure and reimagine what it means to respond to the needs of communities. Within this category, we typically hear the chance of Defund the police, dismantle the police, and abolish the police. And these slogans tend to inflame the passions of conservatives, giving them red meat to chew on. And they strike fear into centrists, and even some on the left, that such slogans will give the 2020 presidential election to Donald Trump. But what do these slogans truly mean? Let's talk about defund the police. According to the Brookings Institute, quote, defund the police means reallocating or redirecting funding away from the police department to other government agencies funded by the local municipality, end quote. It's really not a brand new idea. It's been floating around in activist and academic circles for several years. Even in the case of Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed and the American Spring came about, a local community group. MPD 150 had been pushing to defund the police since 2017, a proposal they have called a police free future. Advocates of defunding police point to the oversized budgets for police. In the United States, policing costs taxpayers $115 billion a year. In New York City, the NYPD budget is $6 billion, more than the city spends on health homeless services, youth development, and workforce development combined. In Minneapolis, 30% of the entire city budget is allocated to police. And deploying police to take care of social issues makes these communities less safe and may cause more violence than they resolve. In an article written for Wired, author Will Bedingfield describes where the funds typically allocated for policing would go to. Quote, to help victims of domestic violence, we might invest in women's centers. To support young people, we might open new youth centers. We might invest in better trauma services for both. We might remove the police from the process of sectioning the mentally ill. We might invest more broadly in community infrastructure, like employment, housing, and education. Through this reinvestment, the police's remits will naturally shrink. End quote. And as we can see, defunding the police does not mean anarchy, but it means diverting the lion's share of police funding towards social services and other community-based solutions that have been historically underfunded. Employing these more specialized resources, advocates assert, will better address the social issues where intervention may be needed and decrease the opportunity. For armed police officers to exacerbate situations, unnecessarily criminalize community residents, and spark violent confrontations. In other words, the intent here is to sever the relationship between the police and public safety. For most who support defunding police, they can foresee situations where armed officers may be needed to respond to intensely dangerous situations but advocates say that proactively dealing with community issues using other resources would decrease the need for traditional armed police. The slogans to dismantle the police and abolish the police are just that, abolish the police and the police. It's sort of at the more extreme end after defunding police. Police abolition advocates tend to point to the role of police state-sanctioned violence against Black Americans throughout the course of U.S. history, and they would make the case that it's pretty much impossible to divorce that aspect of policing, that history, from law enforcement as an institution today. Defunding is part of the solution, but the goal is not only to minimize the police, but to make them, in their current form, obsolete. But what does abolishing police mean for crime? When we need help, who do we call? There's an excellent piece in The Atlantic written by human rights attorney Derricka Purnell entitled How I Became a Police Abolitionist, Discussing the Dilemma Faced by Black Americans and What It Means to Abolish Police. The entire article is a wonderful read. I definitely recommend you check it out. But here are just a couple of highlights. Fernell explains how people often misunderstand those who want to abolish the police and why, in her view, the police need to be abolished. Quote, when people dismiss abolitionists for not caring about victims or safety, they tend to forget that we are those victims, those survivors of violence. The first shooting I witnessed was by a cop. I was 12. He was angry that his cousin skipped a sign-in sheet at my neighborhood recreation center. I was teaching my sister how to shoot free throws when the officer stormed in alongside the court, drew his weapon, and shot the boy in the arm. My sister and I hid in the locker room for hours afterward. The officer was back at work the following week. Like the boy at the rec center, most victims of police violence survive No hashtags or protests or fires for the wounded, assaulted, and intimidated." End quote. Pernell continues, quote, This for me is why we need police abolition. Police manage inequality by keeping the dispossessed from the owners, the black from the white, the homeless from the housed, the beggars from the employed. Reforms make police polite managers of inequality abolition makes police and inequality obsolete, end quote. She goes on to say, quote, police couldn't do what we really needed. They could not heal relationships or provide jobs. We were afraid every time we called. When the cops arrived, I was silenced, threatened with detention, or removed from my home. 15 years later, my old neighborhood still lacks quality food. Employment, schools, health care, and air. All of which increases the risk of violence and the reliance on police. Yet, I feared letting go. I thought we needed them. Until the Ferguson, Missouri cop, Darren Wilson, killed Michael Brown. Brown had a funeral. Wilson had a wedding. Most police officers just continued to live their lives after filling the streets with blood and bone. End quote. Pernau points out that police are responsible for the deaths of over a thousand people each year, as well as hundreds of thousands of assaults and a number of sexual assaults. In addition, she points to the lack of testing for rape kits and the decreased effectiveness of police in solving murders to make the point that we don't need police as much as we have been conditioned to believe. As far as what should replace police... Hernell discussed a number of possibilities brought up by many advocates of police abolition. One of these is an idea from Rachel Herzing of the Center for Political Education. Hersing argues that as a society, we make people safer by reducing interactions with the police to the point of obsolescence. To achieve this, she advocates for the creation of small networks to respond to different types of emergencies such as public-private partnerships can help people in need with resources instead of the police being called to arrest them, groups that can educate and help people who are at risk of harm in the LGBTQ community, or mental health professionals being employed to assist members of the community with mental health struggles. All of this can be done in most cases without police involvement if resources are made available for such an approach to be employed nationally. Another part of this, according to Purnell, can be to focus on the root causes of violence. In a GQ interview with Woods Irvin, an organizer with a prison abolition group, Critical Resistance, Irvin says that in terms of how we as a society deal with violent crime, the focus should be on restorative justice and transformative justice. Restorative justice, meaning the effort to restore relationships to how they were prior to a harm being committed. Transformative justice, meaning the effort to transform communities so that harm is not repeated in the future. And the way this looks is addressing the root causes of the issue, whether it's poverty or oppression or some other reason for lack of tools and resources to properly address issues so that the need is reduced to employ police or prisons. So when we talk about police restructuring, defund the police, abolish the police, dismantle the police, the idea is that as a society, we need to deconstruct our ingrained beliefs about policing as a needed public service. And once that perspective is changed, it becomes easier to imagine and perhaps execute more comprehensive solutions that make all neighborhoods safer and better serve the complex needs of communities. You might ask where I personally land on this. And if you're asking that, it's a fair question. Throughout the Life of Stir podcast, I've always been a critic of police and policing. Part of that is due to personal experience with police. And part of it is awareness of police brutality, racial profiling, And in general, how police departments as well as the mainstream media discuss black victims and the accused versus those who are white, and what that would mean if myself or a family member were to be a victim of a crime, whether it be by police or by some other person. It's disconcerting, to say the least, knowing that if I or my mom or one of my siblings went missing or, God forbid, something happened to them, that it wouldn't be taken as seriously, or that the police or the media might try to find any reason, any blemish in our backgrounds to justify why we weren't sympathetic enough victims. Or if something happens and I call 911, it's a roll of the dice, it's a crapshoot as to what might happen to me once help arrives. There are some Americans who can take the idea of the police serving and protecting them for granted. But unfortunately, I am not one of those people. When I first started the podcast three years ago, I was firmly in the police accountability camp. I believed that we needed the police to protect the public from criminals, but police departments needed to take the removal of bad cops seriously. And a lot of that is probably a function of intersectionality. I'm black, yet I'm also a woman and solidly middle class. Women tend to be the focus of a number of violent crimes, including sexual assaults and domestic violence, and we're often taught to look towards the police for protection from violence against women. In being middle class, living in a mostly white but fairly diverse neighborhood, I don't experience the day-to-day effects of over-policing. In my day-to-day life, I barely see a police car driving down my street. So while I know that over policing and police corruption exist, and I have experienced it in the past, the idea of defunding and abolishing police that wasn't on my radar, and it seemed radical on its face. But I have learned a lot over the course of the past few years of doing this podcast. When I research a topic, I pretty much always learn something new even if it's something that I have some expertise in. And the subject of policing is no different. Because policing comes up in relation to other topics related to U.S. political and social history, I've had the opportunity to learn new information that has led me to reconsider my views on policing, including the real root of the problems with policing and how to rectify them. And when I've learned more about these alternative models of addressing societal issues, They make a lot of sense and connect with my long-standing view that we grossly underfund services that are designed to help people going through various issues. We underfund mental health services. We underfund community programs, social services, public assistance of many forms. And we've done so on a national scale since the 1980s. And that truly needs to change. So it's not such a leap to seriously consider That we could simply reallocate police resources towards funding these other services that can better serve the diverse needs of American communities and move away from a paradigm of locking everyone up as a solution to all our problems. It is extremely difficult to fundamentally restructure entrenched institutions because there are powerful stakeholders who benefit from the status quo and will fight Tooth and nail to prevent significant change. Even police reform measures, which seem to be limited in their long term success in curbing racially biased policing and other police abuses, are usually opposed by police departments, police unions, and politicians who have a stake in continuing to promote that they're tough on crime. At the same time, the best way to push the Overton window more toward the acceptance of fundamental lasting change, is to continue to discuss it, educate the public about it, and begin working to implement it in communities across the country, rather than try to silence the conversation in fear of conservatives somehow seizing on this as too radical for America. And while there's no way we can know right now how well this will work, we only know that there is no conclusive link between increased police presence and a drop in crime, America has always been the great experiment. And it's about time we try something new in this arena, because what we have now isn't working. Defund the police. Abolish the police. Black Lives Matter. I hope you enjoyed this two-parter on policing in the United States. I'm looking to do a public release of a bonus episode from the archives, and then after that, I'll be looking to jump back into the US Middle East Relations series, which I'm really looking forward to. The idea is to get back into a regular release schedule, so that's the tentative timeline for right now. It's 2020, things are nuts, but at least that's the plan, and I'm going to work hard to stick to that. Thank you so much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download, and you'll see the links to the show on several different podcast apps. If there's an app you use that you don't see listed, let me know and I'll look into it. Subscribing is completely free, and you can get new episodes once they come out it's super convenient. If you enjoyed the show, please give it five stars on the app of your choice and leave a review. And I tweet all the time. So follow me on Twitter at PostererCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.